good morning to you today. Glad to see you. How many of you are blessed this morning? First is really my new year. Uh, unfortunately, I had an extension of all the troubles. The things that I had set as goals to begin on January 1 all sort of got post wind in my sails. I feel more empowered by the Holy Spirit than I ever have in my life. And we're excited uh, as we talk through all of those things. So it's a wonderful season. It's exciting of the body of Christ. There are a lot of great churches in the area. We uh, partner with him with us this morning. If this is your first time, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Victory. And we're starting a new series today that might be helpful to you. If, if you've just been coming for a little short, you ask for it. Look at your neighbor and say, you ask for it. And so the subtitle is Your Quest. I'll be sharing this morning, sort of kicking this off. Pastor Haley will next Sunday. Pastor Jeremy Month. And this basically deals with why we do what we do here at Victory. And I'd just like to say, if you would check your uh, chair in which you're sitting this morning, you probably move some things out of the way in order to be able to have access to the seat and enjoy it. But there's a little card there, probably every couple of seats down the aisle, uh, that says you asked for it. And on the back, there's an opportunity for you. It says, what question do you have regarding Victory Church's philosophy of ministry? Now, that's a term that I'm going to introduce in just a few minutes because that's really what this series is about, the philosophy of ministry, why we do things the way we do here at Victory. Because it's really pretty different from a lot of the other churches in the community. And so we're going to explain why and what our, our take is on that and why we can go to the same Bible that our other brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe in a different kind of an expression, can and we can arrive at this particular methodology. There's plenty of room there, several blanks. Uh, if you don't want to write it out, by the way, if you do write it out, please just go ahead and drop it into the offering at the close of the service. We'll keep up with these, and we'll be going through them on the fourth Sunday of the month, February the 22nd, and we'll be answering these questions to the best of our ability based on Scripture and based on um, the determination that we've found here in terms of really what works for the attempt to reach the people that God has called us to reach. There is also an opportunity at the bottom there for you to tweet. If you're a Twitterer, then you can tweet that to at victorywired.com. And there is a phone number there, which we actually use in the media booth back there. All of our parents get access to this. It is completely dedicated in that media booth for the purpose of being able to, when the teachers need a parent to come back, they text that number to the booth and then it goes up on the screen. We'll put up a parent number there that co coincides with, and I'm actually probably answering a question that really belongs for Pastor Haley, so I'll just hush. If you have a question, you can text it to that phone number, okay? Uh, these are just a number of ways that we want to stay in communication with you. You can text a question there. You can Twitter it, at, tweet it at, at Victory Wired, or you can write it long, sort of the old school way, and drop it in the offering at the end of, of church service today. So we're excited to kick this service off in this new series. I'd like you to stand with me one more time, please, this morning. And uh, let's find one of the screens that's comfortable for you, too. We want to read from 2 Timothy, which is a pastoral epistle. Somebody said one time, what are the epistles? And uh, a, a young brother said, the, the epistles are the, are the wives of the apostles. And, and um, it's funny, it's a stupid preacher joke, but epistles are not wives of apostles. Epistles are letters. They are they're written records, particularly that Paul, uh, James, Peter, John, these are apostles of the New Testament church, wrote letters to particular churches or to individuals. When Paul wrote to Timothy, it was addressed to him as different from 
Paul writing to the church at Rome, it was, it's called Romans. Writing to the church at Ephesus, it's called Ephesians. Okay? So we're looking at Timothy this morning, the, the uh, second pastoral letter or the epistle uh, of Timothy, and we're looking at chapter 1. I want to get just about five or six verses, and I'd like you to find your place with me, please, and let's read out loud. Here we go. Now, when we start, stop, stop right there. That who is actually in the context talking about Jesus. So everybody, let's just say he, okay? So I'll just, just check that out. Oh, they changed it for us already. Here we go. All right, so this is Jesus, so let's start now. He who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. So this is Paul writing, and here we go. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed. Stop right there. Notice he didn't say, I know what I believe. This, this is a connection and a relationship to a person. The Word is not just a dogma or a doctrine, but the Word, capital W-O-R-D, is a person and His name is Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, read it with me one more time, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him for that day. Here we go. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Stop right there. Two things I want to bring out today. That's the first one. Keep as the pattern. Say that. Keep as the pattern. Here we go. Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. And last verse. Guard the good deposit. Stop right there. Two things. Keep as a pattern. Guard the deposit. Say it with me. Keep the pattern. Guard the deposit. One more time. Keep the pattern. Guard the deposit. Read on with me now. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Here we go. He says it again. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Help us, Holy Spirit, today. Jesus, we honor you. Thank you for your shed blood, your broken body. As we celebrate that in this house today, in open communion, in in reception of brothers and sisters who might not formally be members of this church, but we know that they are covenant brothers and sisters because of their trust in you, that you have bought them and purchased them with your own shed blood. God, thank you today that we stand in this place and we are, we are awestruck by your greatness. Thank you that it is nothing that we've ever earned or deserved. And even as we've read from Paul to Timothy today, not by our own works, but it was by your good grace that you gave us before time began. We acknowledge that. Open our ears to hear, our hearts to understand our eyes to see. We'll be careful to give you all the praise because I just acknowledge right now that I can't do anything apart from you. Jesus, you do. Holy Spirit, you do what only you can do in this place. We'll be careful to give you the praise and glory and all of God's people said. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. I love the Lord with all of my heart. Mm-mm-mm. Um, I'd, I'd just like to say, because I need to get this out of the way, that I am here today sporting some very, very stylish 
socks. Now, if you can't tell, uh, <clears throat> those are the same socks that the young lady on the platform who was playing uh, the, where is Chloe? We, we affectionately refer to her as Clodine uh, and as one of our musicians. And I just want to tell you, I love her energy. I love her spirit. I love her love for Jesus. Um, I'm going to tear up here if I don't quit. I'm trying to get a hold of myself. Basically, I'm doing this because I had a dare, and I, I took the dare, and then she called my bluff and bought them for me. And so she has on the same pair. Now, the only thing is if we come up here real quick, Chloe, let's look. I want to see. Let's see. You, you, you compare. With, now, see, they, they probably didn't plan to put these on the calf of a bull. Now, see, yours looks like thin crust. Mine's look like Chicago deep dish pizza here. Mine's. Did you hear that? Mine's. Give Chloe a hand this morning if you would. <laughs> okay, I got to catch my breath after being all bent over. <laughs> Some of you are going, wow, what are they doing here at this church? Um, I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm always careful in, 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 in throwing out sentences like church should, because I think church only should be what Jesus intends for it to be, leading by his spirit. But I think it's okay that while we do what he says we should do, it's okay to have a little bit of fun along the way, okay? Um, I, I don't want to go ahead and say that, that our philosophy of ministry says church should be fun because then we start putting fun in front of the work of the Spirit. Work of the Holy Spirit is always first. But I believe that, that God aims for us to laugh a little bit and have a good time and, and recognize that church is not a stuffy place for a bunch of dead, pharisaical, religious folk. And just because it's new and contemporary here doesn't mean we still can't be dead and pharisaical and religious in this place. Uh, but I want to talk to you a little bit about the questions. People have asked us, why don't you? And then it can be any number of things, but why don't you at Victory? And, and it's, it's very interesting to me because people come to Victory because they're attracted to the fact in the beginning that it is different. And there's passion in the preaching and there's excitement and passion in the music and in the worship. And not that there aren't other places in town where there are. Uh, and, and it's not for everybody. Let me just say that. Some of these things deal with preferences more than a clear commandment of Scripture, okay? And so we want to make sure that folk understand that. Just like some of you are sitting here this morning in the 9 o'clock service and you're going, why did you do that second number? Have mercy. Well... I'm going to explain that today without actually chasing the rabbit to specifically answer the question, why would you do a song like that? I believe the message itself will answer that question. So we're, we're asking today, why don't you? And we hear regularly, we hear as the youth minister, as the children's minister, as the lead pastor, people will say, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you have a choir? And really some of these things are just kind of practical. Number one, we don't have the space right now. Okay, new building's going to answer that. When we do it, it probably won't be traditional. I don't see it being uh, wood cross in the middle and the baptistry underneath and choir robes and all that kind of stuff. That's just not how we do it. It's not who we are. Okay? Um, things are not going to tr dramatically change in terms of looks from the way we do things now. In terms of lighting and, and sort of a black background and a whole lot much, much, much more amazing kind of presentation on the, pla of the platform or the stage behind us. Certainly it will be new and fresh and all of that. But there's a reason why we do what we do. And let me just sort of out of the chute answer a couple of things. For example, pastor, why, 
Why do you get up there and preach in jeans and an untucked shirt? Why do you do that? Do you not own a suit? Oh, let me tell you, I own some suits. And I look good in my suits when I wear them too. And that's, that's a fat man talking right there. I like clothes. I love good clothes. I like to dress up. I enjoy it. But let me tell you what hit me here a few years ago when we went through a transition. I actually read a statistic that was put out by the men's clothing industry that said only one in four men in America own a suit. And so we were really wrestling at the time in terms of sort of asking some real critical questions about Victory Church in terms of what can we do to better reach the people of this community in terms of the Delta I don't think that you can really adequately get in a fishing boat and go to a lake and bait up the hook and not understand the fish that are in the lake you're trying to catch and the kind of bait that will attract them. Now realize here I'm not talking about the gospel because that never changes. We don't back up. We don't water down. We don't soft pedal. We clearly say what is the written word of God, the commandment of God, the promise of God, the example of Jesus, all of these things. We don't back up from it. But the way we do that, the way we package it, is a little bit different than you might find in a traditional church. When I started to ask the question, what can we do to be missionaries in Crittenden County? And I started realizing that the whole nation, only one in four men owns a suit. I don't want to be offensive to you, but I'm figuring if in the whole nation only one in four men owns a suit, it's probably less than that in Crittenden County. Because we are not overflowing with a great deal of prosperity here. As a matter of fact, when you look at it on the map and you see it in terms of economic stress and struggle, uh, Crittenden County and the whole eastern portion in terms of the, the northeastern, not up around Jonesboro, but around here, around this area all the way down to Phillips County, St. Francis, Cross County, um, down Helena, whatever those counties are down there, forget Phillips. Um, we're dealing with some of the very poorest counties in the whole nation of the United States of America. And so I'm thinking if we're going to be faithful to be able to reach this community, I've got to bear in mind that what I used to think, and I had scripture to show it, that the high priest had special garments when he went in before the presence of God. And for years here at Victory, I would put on the three-piece and an expensive tie. Is that rain out there? I mean, I mean, and I had, a, I had a handkerchief. Sometimes those handkerchief and tie sets alone cost a hundred bucks. Suits that were pretty expensive and good shirts and all this kind of stuff. And I would always dress up and, and we'd have people that would come and visit and you'd see them come in and a lot of times not come back. And I found out that people didn't feel comfortable because the leader was setting the example and giving the idea that if you're going to be accepted in this church, you have to dress and look this way. And so I started to realize, if I'm going to be a missionary and reach, do you realize, do you know that the census from 1990, 2000, 2010 has consistently shown that 20% of the population of Crittenden County goes to church. 80% of the county do not go to church. And I just want to tell you that the 20% that do go, they're all not saved and born again. And so I started to think, if I'm going to try to reach the 80% and be a missionary, then the way I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm sitting in the fishing boat and I'm trying to bait the hook. I've been trying to, basically the way I've been doing it, catch, catch churched people that are already in church somewhere. Because if you think about it, the churched folks are the ones, those men probably are the ones who actually do own the suits in the county. 
And we have a whole group, 80% of the county out here, that does not. And so I made the decision, I'm going to start preaching in jeans, and I'm going to look a little bit, just a little bit too comfortable for a few folks that might, some might even consider sloppy. But there's a reason I actually can tuck my shirt in. I want you to know that. But the reason that I do it, it's on purpose, it is deliberate, it is, it is intentional. One of our first, our first core value is we intentionally create an environment, number one, where we embrace diversity in this community. And if we're going to do it, we have to be mindful of the people that are here. Now, so I'm going to get a little bit more serious. I've got 15 minutes to run through three questions. Number one, but why don't you? And the first one out of the shoot is a question that we hear. Why don't you have Sunday school classes? Now, let me just say, there is absolutely nothing wrong with. It's wonderful. It is a great method in terms of discipling people. This is a discipleship issue. Sunday school classes have been in use for about 250 years. If we get really technical, the Sunday school movement began in 1780 in England during the Industrial Revolution when so many of the children were actually involved in 15-hour workdays in the factories having left agriculture, moved from the farm to the big cities, and the Industrial Revolution has sucked up all of these women and children into the factories, and these children are not being educated, they can't read. When Sunday schools first were developed, they were actually Sunday schools. They weren't even used to teach doctrine of the church. They were used to teach poor children how to read and write. They were called Sunday schools. Everybody say Sunday schools. Now, the Sunday school movement has been used effectively for about 250 years, and it's all based on how we've done our church services, have really been based on the agricultural model. Everybody goes out and works hard six days, and Sunday they would come in, have a Sunday morning service, dinner on the ground, all day singing, Sunday night church, and then they would go home. And then the really, really faithful folks, the really super saints, the Navy SEALs of the kingdom of God would be the ones that would show up on Wednesday night. Little huddled God's chosen few. And that was sort of supposed to tide them over until the next Sunday. And the way we've done this has all been based on an agricultural model. You go out and you're in the fields and you work. And basically, we've had really in Arkansas, in the Mid-South, the Bible Belt, is really the only area that's still actually... The community works with the church, with the school not planning activities on Wednesday night, the local sports leagues not planning games on Wednesday night. You go to Nashville and your kid's in soccer, church doesn't mean anything because they've stopped operating on this same kind of thing. You go down to Birmingham, down to Dallas, you go to Atlanta, well, they don't understand. The schools don't even pay any attention to Wednesday night church anymore because the whole world out here around us is changing. Now, I want you to realize that there is not a place in the Bible that you can take me to that commands us to have two services on Sunday and a service on Wednesday night. Does that surprise a couple of folks? Nothing in there. That's just basically a method that has been chosen for us to be able to do this. Sunday schools usually dictate how you have to build a church building. You have all these extra classrooms that really don't get effectively used except for one hour on Sunday morning. So you're paying $100 per square foot in a massive building that's not used except for one hour between the early and the late service and you've got a thing called Sunday school. 
And really, when I look at the New Testament church, it wasn't centralized at a bricks and mortar location. It was a people that were involved in their community. The Bible says they were meeting house to house. Now, we're not commanding that you have to do it this way. We don't think that we're better than first church. Put whatever denominational name behind it you want to. We don't think our way is better. We just think it's different. And so we're attempting to reach a whole different group than they're reaching because they've been here for 200 years and they're still not reaching the 80%. Don't shout me down. Why do you do this, Pastor? Why do we have life groups? We have life groups and homes and we've proven this. There are men who have come into victory who would have never, ever come to the service, but they went to somebody's house and hung out with a few other married couples and played some crazy fun games. Somebody gave a 15-minute devotional and they prayed... And they hung out and then realized that all these Christians are not as weird as they thought they were. And we sneak them in the side door of victory instead of coming in the front door. And now there are men in this church right now that have started to grow in the Lord because we offered a meeting in a home somewhere as a life group rather than at a bricks and mortar centralized location called Sunday school. Are we dissing Sunday school? Not, a, not at all. If you want Sunday school, there are great churches out there that offer it. We don't do it that way. This is called a philosophy of ministry. Everybody say a philosophy of ministry. Philosophy of ministry is why you do what you do. So many church splits don't argue over doctrine and importantly critical issues. They fall out over how you do what you do. And so at Victory, we just, we just want you to understand if you can get a picture, if you can understand the why, why we do this, because we're trying to reach that massive 80% that's not interested in traditional church as it has been. So we're here with a missionary mentality. We're here trying to say, hey, come on in here at this church down here at the mall. You know what? You've got to be a little bit of a sanctified rebel to even show up at a place like this. <laughs> and, you know, and find out that the rumor is not true that we actually don't handle snakes in here. I laugh. I mean, that's floated around this community for so many years. I want to go, if they really knew me, if they knew somebody, Scott Grafton said, we were, we were joking at the Leadership Summit yesterday, had a wonderful time Friday and Saturday, had over 40 here that are interested and hungry to take the next step and help us grow into our next phase and come alongside and carry the burden and be leaders. And Scott was joking at this at lunch afterward at, at, at um, Honcho's. And he said, you know, I've wanted to print a T-shirt with Victory logo and that says, where snake handling makes you cur courageous. <laughs> and we were laughing, and I said, you know, if folks had any idea about the pastor, my shirt would say, the only good snake is a dead snake in Jesus' name. <laughs> it's just a hoot to me. Some of the things that people say when they haven't even been in here and seen, because it's different. And that's we get so up in arms over stuff that's different, because Granny didn't do it that way. And you know, Granny was willing to change in her day. Why would you do music that sounds like that? Don't, aren't you sounding like the world? Yeah, and so did 10,000 of Charles Wesley's hymns sound like the current sound of the day in which he was writing that music. Oh, but no, I just don't believe that. I remember when we were down in the little bitty shoebox at 620 West Broadway and a sweet little 75-year-old Assembly of God woman came in and she's used to singing Standing on the Promises and Just Over in the Glory Land and Not a Thing Wrong with Those. Those are wonderful songs that resonated with a previous generation. And we pull out some of those hymns and try to freshen them up a little bit. And she's standing there and she said, you know, I really love the preaching pastor. She said, but somebody just made up those songs. 
as if the hymns that she's been used to singing were dropped down from heaven by God and fully inspired. And I just chuckled. I didn't, I didn't speak to it. I thought, what a sweetheart. And she just doesn't get it. I think church ought to stay the same because that's what she grew up on. And when we look around and we start to see a congregation that we do not ever want to dishonor, we want to honor our elders, but we want to also teach the elders that you can partner with us and you can help us reach the next generation for Christ to build the kingdom of God. And the wisdom you have, if you can catch a vision to invest that into some of these young people that don't quite look or talk or think or act the way you do, that you can actually be used greatly in God's kingdom if you'll come alongside and partner with us in our children's ministry and our youth ministry and our cafe and and just put an arm around some of these young folks that come in that look a little different with different shades of colored hair and all these different kinds of things and just love on them with their crazy socks and with their bouncing hair when they're playing the guitar. And just, just be excited that they're in love with Jesus. All right. So you kind of see why we do philosophy of ministry. Question number two, and I might not be able to make it past this one because this will take a few moments. Why don't you have business meetings? How, how are you governed here at Victory? Okay. Uh, is this just your church, Pastor Michael? Are you calling all the shots? you making all the decisions by yourself? That is just hilarious. We've delegated so many things out to different people. I remember the la- probably three purple book groups back. One of our ladies in the church, an older lady, she noticed that some paint was going up on the walls. And she said, who's doing your painting? And I said, I don't have an idea. She said, well, you're the pastor. Aren't you supposed to know that? And I'm not going to tell you it was. Um, and I said, you know, really right now this church has already grown bigger I don't make all those decisions. We've got groups that specifically oversee ministries. They've been given a clear amount of budget that they work with. And I'm just glad that somebody's doing it and keeping it clean. And I don't have to scrub that paint out from under my fingernails. Because i got other stuff to do. So um, we, we don't have monthly business meetings where we argue over the price of a pack of light bulbs. We don't do that around here. Why don't, why don't you? Okay. Let me just take a moment because this is going to take probably the rest of my time here, about 10 minutes, and I'm going to stop. Why don't you have business meetings? How are you governed? Give me the scripture, if you would, please, from Isaiah chapter 33. This is found in the major prophetic book of Isaiah. Read it out loud with me. For the Lord is our what? The Lord is our? The Lord is our? It is He who will save us. You see three critical expressions of leadership, particularly government. Flip, let's start the chart. Isaiah 33, 22 gives us these concepts of judge, lawgiver, and king. Go ahead. When the United States government was founded, it was founded because it had influence. And I'm going to give you a short, short history lesson. Our founders were influenced by two heavy streams of thought. Number one, the democracy from the Greek city-states, the Athenian particularly, not so much Sparta, but the Athenian understanding of democracy and the Roman idea of um, in, the, in their grasping of that and the Senate representative kinds of government. And they were also influenced by New Testament Christianity. And there were devout men who assigned that original Declaration of Independence, which, by the way, if you really study it, it was written in the form of a covenantal lawsuit against the tyranny of King George III just plastered with numerous scriptures all over it. 
as a, our primary founding document, our first one. Three branches of government, judicial, legislative, executive, go right there with judge, lawgiver, and king. And it was because these people knew that not one man could hold all power. Lord Acton said this, power corrupts, finish it, absolute power what? Corrupts absolutely. Okay, So no man can hold all power and they had already sort of posited the idea of um, a system of checks and balances. Three branches of government in which all power didn't rest in any one of them. Okay, At the very same time the U.S. government was being formed with the original 13 colonies along the eastern seaboard, there were three primary kinds of church government that were already operating in the three primary denominations that were already growing here. The Anglicans, the American name is the Episcopalian. Okay, The Roman Catholics had gotten a stronghold in Maryland, but that was where they were primarily concentrated. We had some Congregationalists. Okay, We think of probably our Southern Baptists that are the ones who are democratically elected and vote. Um, but then we also have um, the Presbyterians, which were very much... Uh, like the judicial side. So if you would go ahead and put up the next line for me, please, because this will, uh, there it is. Okay, so church government was called, and these are the three forms. If you study ecclesiology, which is the study of church government and how we do what we do, ecclesiology will teach you three primary forms of church government. And because we are in the Bible Belt South where there are more Baptists than there are people, I'm going to wait. You could get that in a minute. I mean, even the dogs around here are Baptists. Uh, all you've ever really been exposed to is a congregational form where you have a business meeting on the first Wednesday night of every month and you fight and argue over the color of the carpet and, and you, you have a church split and then you call it church planting when they go across town and start the second or the third of whatever you had. And, and the Presbyterian form is very well established. The Congregationalist, the Episcopalian. Go ahead and give me the next line if you would, please. Um, click. The Biblical Greek, presbyteros, under Presbyterian. It's the Greek word presbyteros. Okay? It basically means aged. The idea of one of wisdom. We're talking about somebody that has some gray hair. Okay? This is the next one under lawgiver is the, is the, the, the diaconate. We get the word deacon from it. You're familiar with that in a Baptist church, okay? And then we've got the episkopos or episkopos, okay? Give me the next line because I want you to see what these words are translated as in your English Bible. Presbyteros is the word elder in your New Testament. Diakonos is the word deacon in the New Testament. By the way, there were both men and women that were deacons. Romans chapter 16, Paul writes and he says, I want you to consider Phoebe the deaconess. Now, I don't, they ain't a Southern Baptist church around here that it will, will, will even recognize that. As a matter of fact, sometimes they won't read the translation that says deaconess. The translation they use says a servant, but it's the exact same word, a ministering servant, diaconate, diakonos. Okay? Phoebe wasn't just darning socks over there in the church in the book of Acts. She had some authority. She was helping make decisions. Yes, a woman. Okay, And then finally, you have a bishop. The bishop is the word 
episkopos. We get the English word episcopalian. Epi means over and around. Scopos is the part of the word where you use, you say telescope or microscope. So an episcopos is an overseer or a bishop. King James, Paul writes to the Philippians, he says to all of the overseers and deacons, to the bishops and deacons. Okay, A lot of times these terms are used interchangeably. Okay, So I want you to recognize that when we move on down through this quickly, because I, I want to wrap up with this question. Next, Click on the next line, please. Your familiarity with this is based on what the office, the person who holds the office of elder in Scripture is appointed. Paul wrote to Titus and he says, I want you to go back to the city and appoint elders there and bring order to the city. Elders are not elected. In the very same way in the United States government, judges are not elected. They are appointed. We're talking on the appellate, the Supreme Court levels. They're appointed and they're there for life. Elders in the local church are there based upon their character, their gifting, the call of God on their lives, and they're appointed. We don't vote for elders here at Victory. Okay, Deacons. Now there is one time in the scripture in Acts chapter 6 where the Greek widows were complaining and basically the apostles of the church said, we, can't, we don't have time to do this. We need to give ourselves to, to prayer and to the study of the word and the preaching of the word. Just go get, select men that are full of the Holy Spirit, men that have wisdom, uh, men that are of good report, have good reputation. And so they went and brought back these, this group and Stephen was one of them, the first deacon of the local church. Uh, if, you're, if you come from a congregational form of government, the deacons are elected, and they're elected basically based on a majority. It's sort of a popularity kind of thing. Now, they can be reprobates, but typically they get elected because they're popular, maybe good-looking, maybe young, maybe they own a business. They can have a spiritual life that's just on the rocks, but popularity gets them in on the deacon board. Don't shout me down. It's all over the place, Okay. The bishop is elected not by the people but by the spiritual body of leaders in the local church. Now jump on down here in the last one. Okay, if Your denominational affiliation, your examples would be the, the, the church government that would be toward this judicial side, toward the elder, would be the Presbyterian church, the, the Lutheran church. Okay, The legislative side, which is really the voice of the people, is more the Baptist or the congregational. Some Pentecostal churches... The other one is Roman Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, other Pentecostal churches. They operate by what they call an overseer. They don't call them bishops. Uh, Church of God in Cleveland, Tennessee has an overseer. Church of God in Christ, Memphis, Tennessee, the African-American Pentecostal denomination has bishops. Okay? So all of these different means, I don't want to confuse you, but I want you to see that we get all up in arms and fight battles over what the Bible describes and we think that it has prescribed it. Now that's the, that's the punchline to why I went, took you through all of that right there. Some churches have elders. Some churches have deacons. Some churches submit to bishops outside of the local church at an archdiocese in Little Rock or over in Memphis or in Atlanta. Some churches make an attempt. We make an attempt to try to do the best of all three of these. We have local leaders here that would be called elders. We don't call them elders because... There is so much confusion being a non-denominational church and we have people who have come from about every different kind of background possible. And I've spent so much time in the living rooms of people trying to explain to them the difference in a deacon at our church and what a deacon does 
and them who have had a Southern Baptist background where really the deacon board wags the pastor instead of the pastor being the set man and leading the charge with the vision. It's sort of the dog wagging the tail. And uh, we don't do things like that around here. Okay, This is why we do it. We, I don't make every decision. There's a whole lot of stuff that I don't decide on. And I'm going to be very specific about that before I end this question. But I want you to see that we don't take time to fight over what the Bible describes and try to claim that it has prescribed it. Many times we, it's only a description when we want to say, look, this is the prescription. You have to do it this way. So we have internal elders. We call them shepherds at victory because that's what elders do. They teach and they lead. Okay, So Jack Murphy, Scott Grafton are elders in this church, but we call them shepherds at Victory. So I don't have to spend time sitting in somebody's living room going, okay, is this an elder like in the Latter-day Saints elders? Do they ride bicycles for two years? Not making fun. But it's, it's the questions that people ask. Okay, um, a, An Episcopalian comes in and the deacon to them means something entirely different than it does to the Baptist. And so we don't have to... Uh, waste time having to explain it anymore because the, the elders are shepherds, the deacons are team leaders. Really in the Bible, the deacon is not calling any shots. The deacon, the word deacon means ministering servant. Amen. Thank you, Brother Felipe. That's it. That's what the Bible word means. And, and in so many different circles, we've said this is the way it is. Honest to goodness, the congregationalist form of government is the weakest one on the page. It splits more often. It has more division. It has more tension and more strife and more disunity in it than any other of the two in terms of the judicial elder or even the bishop from the outside. Now, we have internal leaders, shepherds, who, who get in my face, who ask me questions, who say, no, let's hold off on that, let's wait. We don't... Vote by secret ballot. I look at them and they say, no, that's not the season. Let's wait. I say, okay, great. Let's pray. We'll just continue to pray. We'll wait on the will of the Lord. I listen to those guys. They listen to me. I set vision. They help me carry it out. Sometimes they say, we love it. It's just not time yet. We love it. Let's pray for the provision of God. Are you hearing me? So there's a check and balance there. Okay? There are team leaders that are participating literally in the boots on the ground level that, that have a voice and that come to us as pastors on the staff. They have some decisions that they make, but they alone are not calling the shots. So there's, there are levels of accountability. We don't answer to anyone that we call formally bishop, but the guy who was here this weekend is one of our, quote, overseers of Victory Church, Chip Bueller, to pastor me and Dawn, to speak into our lives, to help bring, I think, definition and clarity to some things that we face as a congregation sometimes, Okay. So, now, if that will help you, I want you to understand that we don't ever need to confuse the message with the method. Say it with me. Don't confuse the message with the method. Say it. Come on. Don't confuse the message with the method. Also, don't confuse what's described with what is prescribed. And government in the local church can come in any number of those different kinds of forms. Now, we're going to be answering all kinds of questions the rest of this month. We're excited about it. We want you, if there's something that really is an issue for you, and a lot of this stuff we typically answer in our foundations classes. Sometimes we have to go back, even for folks who've been through it, because we have to be reminded why we do what we do at Victory. Why is excellence important here? 
why, why, why do you rope off those sides? I mean, that's a great question. Why don't you just let people just sort of sprawl out and sit wherever they want to? Well, because it really makes a difference in terms of the kind of atmosphere and the energy and what you experience in the local church here, especially in this first service. Now, in the second one, it's packed. It's wall to wall. Once in a while, you'll see a few seats. Sometimes we have to bring out extra chairs. But there's a reason why we do that, because we want to help you come together and experience what's happening here in this service. It's easier to teach. I think it's easier for you to be able to, to be touched by the presence of the Lord, to just sort of catch the whole congregational flow and the spirit of what's happening here. And, and it, it's amazing to me sometimes. You know, uh, folks, in, do, folks do stuff in church they don't do anywhere else. Folks are coming to just move those things and just sit where they want to. You know, I've never yet seen anybody get out and move those orange barrels on the interstate. Y'all don't shout me down now. You know what? I, I take my car where somebody's made a decision that I didn't have a voice in. And I said, okay, I'm going to drive into this lane. You, you know, you go to a Grizzlies game, you can't just, just sit anywhere, but you... Really, you actually get real specific. It's got a number on it. Now, we're never going to go to that. We're not going to number your seats and make you sit in the seat. But if it's smaller, it's just we want to try to bring this thing together to have a little bit more of a sense of unity. Are you seeing where I'm coming from? And so there's a reason why we do all these things. And, and we really invite you to say, hey, why do you? Because that helps. It helps bring clarity. I'm already a little bit over, but I'm going to finish on time anyway. So I just want to say to you right now, the last question I want to ask quickly is, is why don't you get people down front? Why don't you have altar calls at Victory Church? Last question. Why don't you have people when they decide to follow Jesus to make a public profession of faith? First of all, there's no place in the scripture that says get them down front. That's where you only place you can get saved. Because you can get saved in your car. You can get saved laying across your bed. You can get saved in your basement. You can get saved in your attic. You can get saved in the supply closet at work. Wherever you call on the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Okay? There's not an, the, the whole idea of altar call is not even a biblical idea. The idea of an altar call did not even begin until the Second Great Awakening under a real important leader by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. We're talking mid-1800s when they started calling people down front to the altar. And in times of revival, there usually is a greater expression of sometimes outward what we might think with repentance in terms of crying and weeping and all of that. And sometimes when folks come to Christ, there is that. Sometimes it's not. And we don't dictate that here at Victory. We don't say, well, they didn't really get saved because they didn't snot and ball around enough. And they were just a one Kleenex salvation. <laughs> Let me just tell you, the lights go down. We do that for a reason. We want it to be between you and Jesus. We don't want you to be distracted by anything else going on in the room. Come on, Clint, help me here as I close this time right now. Why, why do we do it the way we do? Because we feel like what's worked in previous generations might not necessarily be working in 2015. And we give you an opportunity. Sometimes folks don't respond at that moment. They may go home and lay across their bed and go, Jesus, if you're really real, what I heard that passionate preacher say today touched my heart. And they get saved on their bed at home. There's nothing more holy about this spot in the church than there is about that seat in the corner. Holy Ghost is just as much over there as He is right up here. He is just as much in your chairs as He is on this platform. 
Why do we use this term fresh start? It's just, a, it's just a new way to say it. The message translation says, He that is joined to the Messiah gets a fresh start. Why do we at Victory emphasize so much on new creation instead of regularly haranguing you and dragging you down about the old sinner, low down, no good, nothing but a worm person that you used to be? I think I answered the question right there in the question itself. That's because you are a new creation in Christ and you want to get your mind renewed to who you are now and not live out any longer who you used to be. So there's a reason why we do this. We've thought through this stuff. We, we want to strengthen you in your faith so that you can grow in grace in the love and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and who He has made you to be in Christ now. No longer who you used to be in sin and Adam, but in righteousness in Christ. Come on, somebody. Now, we do things differently here, and a lot of it, let me just say to you, is not about a clear commandment of Scripture. It's about a preference. You might not prefer some of it. You might not prefer that same brother that's playing those beautiful chords right now. Some of you might have thought he had a demon a, few, a little while ago when he was cranking out, have mercy. But I promise you it's the same man and it's the same Holy Spirit of God. Just a little bit more youthful sound. Okay? And so I want to say to you this morning, this message really, I think, it relates to you where you are struggling right now. God is up to date. He, he is not antiquated in terms of not understanding your current sin or your struggle that you're facing. Uh, God doesn't just save people the way He did 2,000 years ago, but He knows your personal struggle, and this same God is current right now, and He's, he's, in, he's in the boat, He's on the plane, He's in the cubicle, He's out at, in, the, in the truck with you at work, wherever. If you can just say, Jesus, get in the middle of my mess and fix it. Jesus, save me, I trust you. This same God is timeless because He dwells above time. He is eternal. These things that change from one generation to the next are really just very meaningless because the message never changes. God loves you so much. He loves you right where you are, but He loves you so much He won't leave you the way you are. His grace will cover you and He'll begin to walk with you and transform your life. Heads bowed, eyes closed. In the name of Jesus.